It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Roth. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. Uh, This week's episode... We're kind of taking a step back. I know we've been working on the case against Robert and Christian, uh, but in the process of breaking down a lot of the elements of the crime scene, I noticed some things about the fire that didn't seem consistent at all with our perspective on what we think happened at the Friedley's house on September 17th, 2006, based on what we heard in Charlie DeHart's testimony several months ago when we covered that. Charlie DeHart was the arson investigator. So just for this week, I'm hitting pause on looking into the case against Robert and Christian and taking a step back to make sure we have a clear understanding of the actual crime scene and what happened on that night. And I'm doing that because, as most of you know, my background is in arson investigation. This is what I used to do for a living. And in this case, I kind of just took the arson investigator's word and presented it to you without doing my own arson investigation. And so that's what I'm going to be doing this week. I'm going to be breaking down the actual arson investigation report written by DeHart. And then I'm going to give you some of my key takeaways, things that are actually pretty different from the perspective that we had in the hypothesis that we've been working with since way back at the beginning of this case. And then I'm going to present to you a hypothesis about how I think this crime went down based on what I've seen in the arson investigation. So without any further ado, we're going to take a quick break and then get right into Season 12, Episode 42, The Fire, A Closer Look. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To start things out today, I'm going to do something that will probably be kind of boring for most of you. It's just this first segment, but I'm actually going to read to you verbatim the narrative that was written by Charlie DeHart in his, after he did his arson investigation. And the reason I'm doing that is because I don't want to miss anything. I don't want to skim over anything. He does a great job in his narrative of explaining exactly when he got there, who he talked to, what was happening, 
when he took photos, and how he came to his conclusion. So instead of me trying to just summarize that, I'm going to just read you his narrative. And it's up on our website. The entire arson investigation report is up on our website. And I know I put up a redacted version of it in the past, way back when we originally covered the arson. But I'd encourage you to take a look at it again, because I did some tighter redactions in this version, mainly around Becky's body in the wheelbarrow, because now we know that there's this narrative floating around based on what Jerry Osterloh said in his report and trial testimony, that the ground was wet and washed away all around the wheelbarrow. So I did a new set of redactions in this version of the arson report where I've covered up just Becky and left as much of the surrounding area visible so you can see what the ground looked like when Charlie DeHart was taking those photos, which were taken, as you'll hear in this report, while the fire was still burning. So they were right after her body, within a couple of hours of her body being put out. So with all that being said, again, I apologize for me just reading something. I know that some of you love it, some of you hate it, but I think it's the best way to get through this. Uh, It's a six-page report. I'm just going to go ahead and read Charlie DeHart's narrative. I responded to the incident arriving at approximately 1.59 a.m. on September 18, 2006. I met with W1 Williams. Williams told me the house was fully involved, with fire blowing out of all the windows. Williams said he was met at the driveway by neighbors who were telling him there was a burning body on the side of the house, with possibly two additional victims trapped inside the home. Williams said he walked around the side of the house, observing a body inside of a wheelbarrow on fire, and the residence was fully involved in fire. Williams said he asked for a fire investigator and law enforcement due to the victims involved. I observed a two-story single-family dwelling well involved in fire, with the second story completely burned down to the first floor. On September 26, 2006, at approximately 6 a.m., I returned to the fire with Riverside County Sheriff Detectives. We sifted through the entire residence, removing debris with hand tools and heavy equipment. Now, I want to make a little note here that so this arson investigation didn't happen when they went through all this stuff until the 26th. But on the 21st, Tiffany, Javier, all those people that the whole family was up at the scene digging through the rubble, looking for things. That's when they found that pipe that was out there, the marijuana pipe. Uh, The news crews have been out there and they saw that picture. So just know when they came back to sift through this to do these full arson investigation. The, the scene had already been picked through by the family. Now back into the report. The entire foundation of the residence was exposed, enabling us to observe all burn patterns throughout the residence. Exterior Observations I began my investigation on September 18, 2006, working my way around the exterior of the property. On the east side of the residence, I observed the garage portion of the residence with several vehicles parked in front of the garage. The vehicles were photographed and license plates recorded. I continued around the east side of the property, observing a red-colored True Temper wheelbarrow with the remains of a burned body inside the wheelbarrow. I took photographs of the wheelbarrow and body. The body was lying on its back with feet towards the handles of the wheelbarrow. The right side of the body had severe burning to it, with the left side of the body charred through the bones. With the amount of fire damage to the body, I believe a combustible liquid was poured onto the body, accelerating the fire. The fire in the wheelbarrow was a separate fire from the structure fire. 
there were no accidental or natural sources of ignition located in or around the wheelbarrow. Sterile gauze pads were inserted into the body bag with the body from the wheelbarrow. The gauze pads were sent to the Department of Justice Laboratory for analysis. There were tire tracks from the wheelbarrow, with footprints leading towards the residence. The footprints traveled from the north to the south. Riverside County Sheriff's deputies followed these footprints, preserving them as evidence. The footprints and tire tracks were photographed by Riverside County Sheriff identification technicians. I continued around to the north side of the residence, observing the back patio area of the residence. In the back patio area, I observed a large propane tank, which supplied the residence with propane gas. The tank was in the off position, with approximately 20% propane on the tank's gauge. Williams said the propane was in the on position when he arrived, and he turned it off while securing the utilities during his initial walk around to the residence. The valves to the propane tank were intact, with no damage to them. Just south of the propane tank, I observed a barbecue with the lid covering it. The barbecue had fresh briquettes in it, which were still warm to the touch. The barbecue briquettes were undisturbed, with no drippings from food items being cooked over them, and the grill was clean with no food stuck to it. I've determined the barbecue was ignited prior to the structure fire, but it is not a contributing fire in the cause of the structure fire. Now, as a side note, I've got more on that grill later on in the next segment, but let's continue on. On the picnic table, I observed a white bottle of charcoal lighter fluid and some long wooden matches. The charcoal lighter fluid had some fluid left inside of it, with some radiant heat damage to the bottle. The exterior damage to the north side of the structure was severe, with fire still burning on the wooden exterior patio. The north wall of the residence was completely burned away. The north side of the garage was the only wall still intact on this side of the structure. I continued around the west side of the structure. On the west side of the structure, the north end of the wall was completely burned away, with the south end still up with scaffolding on the south end of the west wall. I did not observe any footprints in this area as it was heavily traveled by fire suppression crews. I continued around the front of the residence, observing the exterior patio intact, with the exterior portion of the walls on the structure burned away. In the area of the garage, I observed the main electrical panel. Inside the electrical panel, there were several tripped breakers. Fire suppression scratched the panel next to the breakers which were tripped when they shut the power off to the residents. Okay, and just so you understand what he's saying there is fire crews will always shut down the utilities to a house when they're fighting a fire in it. And when they looked at the breaker box, they could see some of the breakers were already tripped before they shut them off. In order to preserve that evidence for the fire investigator, they made scratches on the electrical panel next to the breakers that were tripped, meaning they had short-circuited so that he could tell the difference between the ones they shut off and the ones that had been tripped by the fire. Now back to the report. The electrical panel received severe heat damage, melting the main power breaker away and cracking the glass to the meter. The trip breakers in the panel would be normal due to fire shorting out the wiring inside the residence. I continued to the garage area of the residence, observing all three exterior walls of the garage intact. The contents of the garage were undamaged by the fire and only received water damage by fire suppression efforts. The roof of the garage had major fire damage to it, with the roof rafters burned away, creating a safety hazard. Now we move on to his interior observations. I began my interior investigation working my way from the least amount of fire damage to the most. 
I did not start my interior investigation until fire suppression crews located the two bodies inside and detectives could process the bodies. The interior investigation was coordinated by Riverside County Sheriff investigators. The interior of the garage had several plastic fuel containers inside of it under the workbench. There was a red round fuel container inside the walkway through the garage. This was the only fuel container out of place as it was obvious they all had a place under the workbench. Just inside the main garage door, there was a rectangle fuel can lying on the garage floor next to the table saw. The lid to this metal container was loose but still attached to the container. These fuel containers inside the garage were photographed in place and collected as evidence by Riverside County Sheriff technicians. There were several fire extinguishers inside the garage, and none of them were discharged as the gauges showed full and the handle pins were still in place. The garage had numerous power tools inside of it, and the tools appeared to be in their places inside. The only fire damage to the garage was to the roof rafters and the west wall bordering the residence. There was an electric water heater in the northwest corner of the garage. The water heater had burned the upper portion of it with the lower portion clean. The burn patterns were from the fire extending into the garage from the living space of the residence, and the water heater is not a factor in the cause of this fire. The garage only had charring to the roof rafters and the stairs leading into the house. The charring to the garage stairs was low, with fire extending up the stairs to the living space of the residence. This low charring to the stairs is the only direct fire damage to the lower portion of the garage. I examined the electrical wiring in the garage, finding no indication of an electrical short in the wiring. There was no beating of the wiring with no copper flow and no surface distortion of the wiring. Inside the garage, I did not observe any materials which would have spontaneously combusted. I found the area around the stairs going from the garage to the house to be an area of origin. There were no appliances in this area. I continued into the residence, observing the least amount of fire damage to the attic space above the garage. I was unable to walk into the attic space due to structural damage in this area. I observed this area from a ladder placed on the remaining garage walls. The attic had a large amount of items stored in it with a heavy fire load. In the southeast corner of the attic, I observed two metal fuel containers. These fuel containers were photographed in place and removed with pike poles. Riverside County Sheriff's technicians collected these two fuel containers as evidence. I observed the burn indicators in the attic area. The angle of char, depth of char, sooting, and staining on metal items, determining the fire traveled from the living space into the attic area. There was no area of origin inside the attic space. I continued into the living area of the residence. The interior of the residence received severe fire damage, with the second story completely consumed by the fire. The east end of the residence had the least amount of fire damage to it, with the west side of the residence completely burned through the floor. That right there is something that you need to note that didn't really get brought up in the testimony when he's talking about the points of origin. The entire west side of the building, so from like the kitchen and where the front door was to the west, to the whole rest end of the house, the floor is gone, completely gone. Let me continue. On the east wall of the kitchen, I observed some low char to the area around the garage door with a V-type pattern burned away from the wood frame around the door. In this area, I observed char to the underside of the stairs going into the attic area. This area is the top of the stairs coming up from the garage. 
I determine this area to be an area of origin, which is consistent with the top of the garage stairs. Now I want to pause right there. This is the first place, and there are not many of them in here, but this particular spot is where I disagree with DeHart's conclusion. He determined that the stairs going up from the garage into the house were one of the points of origin. He based that on the fact that there are like three steps that go up to a platform or a landing, and then you go into the front door of the house, and those stairs are burned really badly, and you can see that in the photos on the report. And he's talking about that there's char patterns under the stairs, which means that there was fire coming from underneath them. So that's you know what we're looking for when we're trying to find a point of origin. You're looking for a the low burn because obviously heat travels up. And so by looking at that at a glance, it does in fact look like, well, that's that's an obvious low burn. It's actually below the floor of the house. But I disagree with him that it's a point of origin. I think what he's looking at there was due to what we call drop down because of the collapse that happened above there and all the fire uh, that happened um, in the in the attic area, as well as the upstairs, which is where Becky's room was right up there. Oftentimes, and this is a common mistake that happens a lot of time with arson investigation, is you can mistake drop down for low burn. So if, meaning something above was burning and through the collapse, it falls down and then it ends up falling underneath those stairs which creates this kind of secondary fire under the stairs and kind of disguises itself as being a low burn when really it happened later. Uh, one of the, I'm going to explain in the last segment where, how I, where the point of origins are as far as I see them. Uh, but one of the big factors that we have here is that Tim Summerlee, after the fire was set and raging, was looking through the garage at those stairs into the house and there was no fire there. So there's no way just based on that observation alone, that couldn't have been a point of origin in DeHart's defense. He did not know that. I don't think he knew what Tim Summerlee had said that he saw or when he said it. So I just want to point that out again. I'm going to get into it more with my assessment at the end, uh, but I disagree that that was a point of origin. And that was one of the key factors that we thought was that played into kind of our profile and crime scene reconstruction before. And now as I'm looking at it and really doing a full investigation, I think that's incorrect. I don't think that's a point of origin. Let's get back into the report. I continue through the kitchen area, observing the bird patterns to the remaining wood frame. I follow the char patterns, angle of char, depth of char, protected areas and unprotected areas back to the area of the garage entry to the kitchen and dining room area. I again followed the burn patterns back to the area around the front door to the residence and the stairs to the second story living area. On the exposed floor of this area, I observed some donut shaped patterns and linear shaped patterns with charring in between the floor seams. There was a circular hole burned through the floor by the stairs to the upper story living space. I also do want to point out here that those stairs were completely consumed by fire. He's talking about where the stairs used to be before they burned up. Back to the report. I used a combustible gas detector through this area, detecting no combustible liquids in this area with the gas detector. This was most likely due to the length of burning and foam being used by fire suppression crews. The burn patterns in these areas indicate the use of a combustible liquid to accelerate the fire. On the southeast wall of the residence, I examined the wiring from the back of the electrical panel. The wiring had no splattering, 
beating, or surface distortion to them with no indications of an electrical short. The damage to the wiring is normal pulling apart due to melting from the fire. The laundry room area of the residence had major fire damage to it, but I did not locate an area of origin in this area. The washer and dryer in this room received external fire damage with no interior fire damage to the dryer. The appliances in this room showed no indication that they were a factor in the start of this fire. And I again want to pause right here just to kind of explain what he's talking about and just to kind of give you guys a little bit of an idea of like how cause and origin or arson investigation works. So what he's looking at is, you know, one common place for a fire to start inside of a house is a dryer fire. So when you look at a dryer that's completely burned as you're looking at it, you may think, well, look, there's a, there was a lot of fire here at the dryer. So what he's saying when he says there's nothing on the inside. So then you want to open it up and look because of the way fire burns. If the fire had originated from inside of the dryer, you would see burn patterns, not just on the outside, but also on the inside. You want to check the lint traps. You check the back. You check the vents coming out the back inside and see if fire came from inside and worked its way out. In this case, it didn't. Same thing with the stairs that he was talking about earlier. He saw that the stairs were burned. Uh, and so he looked underneath the stairs. And when you can see there's char patterns from the bottom, that means the fire came from underneath it and burned up through it. Back to the report. The living room area of the residence was completely burned through the floor. I examined the char patterns in this area, finding the fire traveled from the top down, burning the top of the floor joists in an even char pattern. The bottom of the floor joist was protected with most of the charring to the upper portion. The burn patterns in the living room area did not bring me back to a point of origin in this room. This room was mostly damaged due to the length of burning and with the burning debris falling down from the second story. Now again, I'll pause here. I adamantly disagree with DeHart's assessment here. Uh, he says they didn't find a point of origin in the living room, which is the room. And I'll have a diagram up on the website, but the in the, the back left of the room, the northwest corner of the room. The floor is completely burned away, and that's where the majority of the damage is to the outside of the house. The walls are burned through. Everything's burned through there. Now, he's not wrong in saying he didn't locate a point of origin there, but when you step back and look at the broader picture, the fact that there was so much burn there that the floor is gone, the, like the plywood and the flooring above it is all gone, is to me an indicator that the fire not only probably started in that room or that was part of the point of origin, there was probably accelerant all over that floor in order to burn it that badly. Back into the report, moving on. The entire second story living space of the residence was completely consumed by the fire falling down to the first story. The debris from the second story was completely consumed and I was unable to interpret any of the burn indicators from the second story. Then he has a section marked interviews and it just says, all interviews pertaining to this case were conducted by Riverside County Sheriff Detectives. So he didn't interview anybody. And then we move into his origin determination. So this is where he's saying he thinks the fire started. During the course of my investigation, I was able to positively identify three separate points of origin. The first area of origin is located near the doorway from the kitchen area to the garage. This area of origin would block the egress of occupants trying to leave the residence through the garage. The second area of origin is located at the bottom of the stairway to the upper living area. This area of origin would block the egress of occupants trying to leave the second story and front entrance of the residence. 
And the third area of origin is located outside in the wheelbarrow. The body inside the wheelbarrow is a separate fire from the residence. Now, this section here, this is where I think DeHart made a mistake. And this is where a lot, this is, this, this is some of the reason why people will say that arson investigation is junk science. It seems to me, based just solely on what I'm reading here, that he made his determination partially based on a hypothesis he had of the reasons why someone would start fires in those places. The fact that he puts in there that there was a fire by the door to the garage and that would block someone from exiting that way, and then there's another point of origin by the front door that would block people from leaving that way, those are things that shouldn't be a part of the arson investigation. You're supposed to be just looking at the science, the burn patterns, what it tells you, and the fact that he's putting that into there. I, th- I think that I think that's part of the reason why he, and again, just my opinion, was mistaken about the the stairs going from the or the doorway out to the garage being a point of origin, because he, I think he lets he lets stink into his head that the purpose for that was to block an exit when we know now he didn't know then that the victims were already dead, that they had been shot to death. There was, there was going to be no exiting the structure. And so that wouldn't have been necessary. Um, But that's his origin determination. Let me move on to wrap up his report. Uh, The last page is his opinions and conclusions. Through my training and experience in fire investigations and with two separate origins inside the residence and with a separate fire outside in the wheelbarrow, I was able to rule out all accidental and natural causes of the fire, determining these fires were intentionally set by an unidentified person or persons using an open flame type device and combustible liquids to accelerate the fires. And I, of course, do absolutely agree with that. You know, he's, he's saying that you know, the first thing he's looking for was, was there a natural reason? Like, was there, you know, a fireplace with the grate open or were they running some other kind of heating device or were there electrical shorts? Was there anything that could have accidentally caused this fire? He did not find any of those. And then when you take in the circumstances, um, primarily Becky's body in the wheelbarrow, you put all that together, it tells you that this was not in any way an accidental fire. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
All right. For this next segment, I'm going to tell you my opinion of what happened in the fire. And just some, a lot of most of what DeHart says in his report, I, I agree with. I'm not going to rehash all of that stuff. His process is exactly right uh, that you start off. Um, and I'm, by the way, I'm sure he's been doing he's done many more hours and investigations than I have. So I'm not like saying this as though I'm the expert and he's, you know, and he's my men, you know, I'm his mentor or something like that. I'm just saying that. The way I was taught and the way I taught arson investigation is always you start on the outside. You walk around the building and you make observations from the outside because you're looking for usually in most circumstances. Now, things can change based on, say, open doors and windows and different drafts. But generally speaking, you can usually tell the quadrant at least of a house as far as the point of origin, based on what you see from outside, because the area that ignites first is typically going to burn the hottest, burn the longest, sustain the most damage. You'll see that, you know, from flames coming out of windows, or in this case, you know, walls completely burned away on one side and not the other. And, of, but of course there are other factors there. You know, if there happened to be a lot of, you know, someone had a stack of pallets in one room on the backside of the house and the fire started in the front then obviously you have a huge fuel load in the back, so that that would cause more damage there. Uh, wind, you know, the fire will travel downwind. So if you know the the fire could have started in one place, and due to open windows and doors, the draft could have pushed it in the other direction. But we don't have the, any of those things in this case. We don't have any indication that there was an excessive fuel load in the northwest corner of the house uh, or the west side of the house in general. If you look at the diagram made by Tiffany, that's up on our website. That was the living room and den area. So you're thinking probably a couch, a couple couches, chairs. Uh, we know there was like a stone fireplace in the in the living room that is certainly what I would think would not have been in use on a 90-degree day. Um, but there's no excessive fire load here. The wind was coming out of the north, which means you would expect the travel to move to the south. You'd, you'd expect to see more damage on the south side because it would blow the fire that direction. But when you walk around the house, and I, I just I just don't understand why he didn't factor this in. And all I can think of is because he was maybe he got some blinders on based on the the burn patterns and the theory about the egresses being blocked with a flammable liquid. But for me, from my basic observation, when you're looking at the outside of the structure in the walls, when you see that the northwest corner of the house, the walls are gone completely burned through and the wind was coming from the northwest that night a very very light breeze but it's coming from that way which means that would be the, the it would be pushing the fire the other direction and then so from the outside i would say well your point of origin is probably on that end of the house on the west side of the house probably the northwest side of the house because it's not just the walls also he doesn't mention here but there was a wooden deck that extended off most of the back of the house from the and the northwest side of it, off the north side, so to the back of the house. Pretty good sized deck, estimating from looking at it, probably maybe ten feet by twenty foot deck back there. The deck is even burned away from the house. So there were there was heavy, heavy, heavy fire load in that northwest corner of the house. It burned, seems to have burned the longest and the hottest over there, which typically is going to be your area of origin. So from the outside, I think that the fire probably started 
somewhere in that northwest corner. But I also think that we have multiple points of origin. I don't disagree with with DeHart on that. Now, moving on as we go into the inside, just some things I noticed. DeHart makes a big deal, particularly in his trial testimony, but also in his report, that there's a hole burned in the floor at the base of the stairs by the front door. Uh, which is, you know, as he said, he surmised that that was, you know, probably done with flammable liquids poured there, uh, and it was lit there maybe to block egress, which may be true. Didn't detect any gas, but that's not unexpected. He mentioned the foam, but that shouldn't affect that. That they would have been using Class A foam, not Class B foam, uh, in a structure fire like that. So the the gas, the the foam shouldn't have affected it. But just the the length of time burning, it just it just consumed the gas, is what you would expect. But he makes other very good observations. Uh, I think when you look closer, not just at a hole, where he looked at the he mentioned when I was reading in the report the seams, uh, and that's like the seams were like if you you've got four foot by eight foot sheets of plywood that you put together to make up your floor. He looked at the at those the the cracks between those boards, and he could see charring in there. That's a telltale sign of accelerant being used fire wouldn't there's there's fire again obviously we all know basic science goes up heat goes up but to to, to burn down to the floor is typically caused from you know a, a fully involved fire that completely flashes over which will put a, a charring on the floor or accelerant and when you see it down in those cracks where a liquid would go telltale sign accelerant was used i agree with him accelerant was used i'm not so sure that that hole really tells us much just because there's a hole there. It's probably an area that was wore down a little bit more. There could have been damage there. Who knows? Or maybe there was an excessive amount of accelerant put there. But what I want to go back to is that if you go about four feet to the west of that, from that point forward, the entire floor is gone. Not just a hole. The, the whole floor is completely burned down. And so there's crawl space underneath. So as that drop down is happening, you would that those flames from underneath the house would be coming, you know, moving underneath the floor through the rest of the structure. So it's, you know, it could be a combination of things where that floor has collapsed. Now you've got flames coming underneath and then maybe a hole burns down through there and it draws fire up from underneath it. I think likely there was accelerant or well, for sure there was accelerant put in that area by the front door. But I don't think, and, and the reason this is important is because my assessment and my profile of, of the offenders was based on what appeared to be based on the trial testimony, a very sophisticated offender that knew a lot about fire. You've got a body in the kitchen, a body in the laundry room, but they don't put gas on those bodies. Instead, they put, put gas just in a couple spots and light it in remote areas and create a draft and it blows up. You know, it'll blow the fire up into the second floor and burn the house down without having accelerant all over the place. But now as I'm actually looking and doing my own investigation, I don't think that's the case at all. I think they put all kinds. I think they poured a lot of gas in that house in a lot of different places. And so while I'm looking at continuing to figure out where the point of origin is, I went back to also an assumption we made based on on the diagram where they circled the two spots where accelerant was used. And on that diagram, which we've all been looking at for months, there's the one in front of the front door. And then there's the one in at the door out to the garage. Well, that, that's that been confusing ever since we we saw that and read the testimony. 
Because again, Tim Summerlee was looking through that door. Well, when I was looking through the crime scene photos, and shout out to Zach, too, who was going through some of the stuff with me, he actually helped me. It's really hard. To, you'll see in these photos, it's very hard to orient yourself. One thing that I wish DeHart would have done differently is I was always taught, and again, I taught, that when you take photos of something, you always want to get a wide shot, a little bit closer shot, like a medium range, and then a close-up, so you get perspective on what you're looking at. His report is full of a lot of, like, here's a photo of charring on a stud, but it's so close up, you don't know where the hell it's at in the structure. So it's very hard to to orient yourself. But one thing that we have is there's a wall between the kitchen and the dining room. So if you can imagine the house in your mind, or if you're looking at the map, if you if you walked in through the garage, through the door into the kitchen, so you go from the garage up those three steps into the kitchen, To your left, there's a wall that runs all the way along there. Now, I had always assumed, based on the drawing and just by how I would think someone would design the house, that there would just be an opening in the wall to go from the kitchen into the dining room. But as it turns out, there was a door there. So you could actually close the door. You have to open a door to get into the dining room. And you can tell that in the burn patterns on the floor because you can tell that that door was open just a little bit. And and because the burn pattern, the, the area where the door was over, that little one-inch slit by 30 inches long, however long that door was, doesn't have the charring that the rest of the floor has because the door was over it, protecting it. So you can actually see the angle of that door. Uh, and it's open, I don't know, maybe 8, 10 inches, so it's cracked open a little bit, but not wide open. But that is one thing that you can use when you're going through the photos to help orient yourself to where you're at in the crime scene, because anytime you see that very clear marking on the floor, you know, that's the wall between the kitchen and the dining room. Well, there is a hole burned through the floor around that area of the front door, but it's on the other side of that wall. The hole that's burned through the floor is not right in front of the doorway from the garage into the kitchen. It's actually in the dining room. So a wall and a door you got to go through It's in the dining room near the adjacent wall to the garage. In fact, when you're looking at the burn patterns, once they they spray off the floor and you look at it, you've got the entire west end of the house. The floor is gone. I mean, literally not there. Then you've got the area comes around to the front door where the stairs are on the south side of the house, heavily charred with a hole in it. You continue on to the southeast corner of the the residence, not the garage, but the, the house. That's the dining room. That floor is very, it's, it's almost completely charred. It's all black. The linoleum is burned up on it. It's gone for the most part. And then you have that other hole. The one place where the floor looks pretty good is actually in the kitchen. That seems to be the one place that wasn't burned that I'm going to, I'll circle back around to that later. But the floor, there's evidence the floor was burning badly in, in about three quarters of the house. So from starting from southeast, from the dining room to the front entryway, into the den, as as it's labeled on the diagram, then up to the northwest corner to the living room, and then into the laundry room. All of that, you know, again, the whole west side, the floor is completely gone. The rest of it, the floor is charred really badly. Just the kitchen is where you you can still see clean linoleum that wasn't charred or burned from the fire, which I think was partially due to the collapse. So with all of that said, my conclusion is 
that the area of origin was the northwest corner of the house, the living room. But I think, and I'll I'll explain all this in detail at the end, but I think accelerant was used through the living room, the den, the front entryway, and the dining room. I think there was accelerant spattered all around the house, everywhere except in the kitchen, which I'll explain why here in just a few minutes. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Another thing that I want to point out here uh, that I noticed, as I said, I don't have a lot of takeaways that differ from what DeHart said. Uh, But one is that he concluded that the charcoal on the grill was lit prior to the fire. And that's interesting. I mean, it's not, it doesn't give us like a pinpoint timeline of anything because we don't know when John and Vicky ate dinner or when they normally ate dinner. But that's something to to note that if they had lit, lit the charcoal on the grill and were getting ready to eat and never got a chance to eat, that's certainly worth knowing. But I don't think that's the case at all and and I'll explain why first of all in the photo that you see in the and I'm going to put a couple extra photos too that the police took but the photo you see in the arson report in DeHart's report shows he he's lifts the lid open and takes a picture of the coals and it's exactly as he described the grate is clean like the grill part that you put the meat on is clean the briquettes underneath are clean and you see how uh, hopefully, most of you have seen how a charcoal grill works, and you know what I'm talking about here. But you know, the briquettes are black. You light them, and once they're ready to start cooking, uh, they turn white. They'll be glowing red at the time, but then you know they they turn white as the, as they're exposed to the heat. And at a glance, it looks like oh well, the it's it's white in the middle, and that's what you expect when you light charcoal with with lighter fluid, like you're getting ready to cook. But I, I spent probably too much time on this, but. I don't think that's what happened in here, and for a number of reasons. One, he concluded, he doesn't get there until 2 o'clock in the morning. He concluded that the charcoal was lit before the fire started in the house. And again, now he's he's getting away from science, and he's getting and he's into hypotheses, which he shouldn't be doing, I don't think. I, I, I don't do that when I do an arson. But now I'm trying to do both, but as an arson investigator, that's not your job. The thing is, if anybody's ever cooked with charcoal, if you leave charcoal on the grill like that for that long, it just, it'll just be dust, ashes. They don't the, the briquettes don't last that long. Also, when you light it, the the way that you normally cook with charcoal is you make kind of a a mound like a like a like a high pile of the charcoal of the briquettes, put the lighter fluid on it and light it and you let it burn like that 
until the coals are all glowing red. Then you spread them out throughout the bottom of the grill and put your grate on so you can so you can cook using that whole surface area. You don't want a real hot spot right in the middle. Well, these are still piled up. That was the first indicator that they weren't spread around was interesting. The second thing that occurred to me was the lid was on it. You don't put the lid on the charcoal while it's heating up. And it's very clear when you look at it. Some of the briquettes are still black. Some of them are, are half black and half white, meaning it, that charcoal wasn't ready to cook on yet. And the, and the lid's on top of it. You don't do that because it'll just choke it out. So that didn't make sense. So then I started looking closer at the actual briquettes. Now, some of it's washed out. But what really drew my attention was there's a, bri- a briquette in the top right of that photo. You'll see it in half of it's black. And then one point of it is kind of one of the corners of it is white. And like that has burned, has been exposed to heat. But it's backwards. So the fire, if you were lighting the charcoal, you would light it in the middle. And so the, the, the side of it that's pointed towards the middle would be the first to, to burn and turn white and it would work its way out. But in this case, the side towards the middle is black still and the t- side towards the outside is white. There's other indications of other briquettes that have that same pattern, but that one's very obvious that, that the heat appears to have come from outside of the grill, not inside of the grill, not from the middle of the grill. And then if you step back and look at the pile of briquettes as a whole, the the briquettes on the right side are all white. They've been they've been obviously heavily exposed to heat through the middle, but on the left side, they're still black. And and those, of course, the 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 side towards the center is white, which is what you would expect. But that's also the same direction that the heat appears to have come from from everything across it. So. Uh, it's very difficult to explain this in an audio format, but if you just imagine a circle of charcoal that's going to be white when it's turned to heat, it looks as though there was a lot of heat on the right side. And so the the coals start turning white from right and move their way to the left until they stop and the stuff on the far left hadn't quite ignited yet. So those burn patterns indicate that the heat source for those briquettes wasn't from the middle of the grill. It was from the right side of the grill. That right side of the grill happens to be facing the northwest corner of the house. That's the direction of the biggest fire that where the walls burned through. The largest, heaviest fire load was right there on that side of the briquettes of the grill. And then if you look at some of the pictures I have that weren't part of his report, but I put onto the website you can see right there near the grill on the picnic table, there's a plastic bucket with the matches and lighter fluid in it, and the same side of that plastic bucket is melted away. So what that shows me is that there was an intense, incredible amount of radiant heat coming from the northwest corner of the house, which was the heaviest involved in fire, that melted the side of that bucket, and I think that it also heated up that side of the grill and cause those briquettes to burn and start to turn white. And then go back to the fact, remember, the lid's on it. If the lid was open and they had, and those briquettes had free airflow, then after that many hours, there wouldn't be any briquettes left. They would have just, they, they would have really got going on fire and, and just went all the way down to ash. But because the lid was on it, the heat was enough to give it 
the heat source it needed. The briquette served as the fuel, but there wasn't enough oxygen for it to openly burn. So it's a, it's a lot of stuff just for a grill. But the point being is, in my opinion, John and Vicky didn't light that grill. What's strange about it is it doesn't look like they were getting ready to light the grill either, which is perplexing. I'll admit, I mean, I get it because I do shit like this, but it looks like somebody put the briquettes in the charcoal in the grill, you know, like cleaned it, put the briquettes in, cleaned the grate, put it in there, closed the lid and just left it. So it was like ready for the next time they cooked because it doesn't, there's no indication that they were about ready to, you don't put the grate on when you light the, the, the briquettes to get ready to cook. You don't put the grate on it. You, you take the grate off. Pile them up, like I said. You light it, let the charcoal burn for 20 minutes or so until it's really good. Then you spread the briquettes out. Then you put the grate on it. But the grate was already on it, and the lid was closed. None of that adds up to me that somebody has lit it and is waiting for it to be ready to cook on. It looks like they just put some briquettes in there and had it ready for the next time they were going to cook. Obviously, I don't know if that's the case. I, I have, I do, I literally do the same thing. I, I use, a, I have a green egg. So it's a little different process, but when I clean it out, I load it up with charcoal and I have it all ready to go for the next time that I'm going to cook on it. But for what it's worth, the lid was on it. The grate was on it. The coals are still piled up. They're not burned to ashes. Five, six, who knows? I don't know exactly what time he looked at it, but at least five, six, eight hours after they would have been lit, you know, if they were lit before the fire. Uh, and because of the radiant heat and what we see with the bucket, I think they were the briquettes were just already in the grill ready to go, and radiant heat from the fire caused them to to burn, but not free burn enough to go down to ash. All right, now here's where things get get pretty interesting, at least as far as I'm concerned. We're gonna talk about the collapse of the building. There's indications as you look through the crime scene photos, uh, and that's the main reason I first started looking at this, was because you can see the floor joists when they're still when they're not completely burned through all the way from one end to the other. You can see the angle of their collapse. And what you can see in those crime scene photos is the floor joists that run from the south end of the house, from the front towards the back. The back has been the back ends of them have been burned away. As I mentioned, that whole side of the house was was burned up. But the south side of them, of those floor joists, are still intact, and some of them are attached to the wall, and so they're tipped down. So if you can, if you can imagine, if you just like hold your left arm out in front of you uh, and at a 90-degree angle so your arm's flat in front of you, the bottom half of your arm, and you just take your hand and tip it down, that's how the floor collapses. So, so your elbow would be the attachment to the front of the house. Your fingertips would be the attachment to the back of the house. And if you just take your fingertips and shoot them down, make that angle, that's how the house collapsed. So the collapse happened from front of the house towards the back of the house. And then also from, there's a lot of debris from the garage attic into the house. So it's kind of, if you take the the Southeast corner so what's happened here is the whole south of we're now we're talking the second story now. The southeast corner of the second story didn't have as much fire damage to it. Most of the fire damage was in the northwest and to the north. So as those structural components underneath the floor burned away, 
then the second floor collapsed down. And so everything that was on the second floor fell basically into the kitchen. Stuff from the attic went down into the kitchen. Becky's room, which is directly above the kitchen, went down into the the kitchen area. Everything fell in that area from the front to the back, from the east to the west because of the main fire damage from underneath was in the opposite place. And you can see that not only based on burn patterns, but also based on the structure that's left standing, you can see which direction it fell. Now, why is that important? Well, this is where things get, get kind of hairy. John and Vicky's bodies. So as I was going through documents and photos and stuff in the case weeks ago, I was looking at the autopsy photos for John. And what I noticed was his body was burned all the way around it. Like there's not one side that was protected from the fire, which is what, just so you understand what you would expect if a body's on the floor, you know, pressed against the hard linoleum floor where he was found, that area would be protected. The, The parts of him that were touching the floor would be protected from the fire because oxygen can't get in there. And so you would expect lots of charring and burning from the top down, but there would be part of his body that would be unburned. And he doesn't have that. It's extreme charring and burning all the way around. And I also noticed there's debris still stuck to his body all the way around, like almost like has become part of his body on all sides. That shouldn't happen if he was where he was found. When the fire started, that was my first indication without doing the arson investigation. I was just looking at his body. Then I look at, looked at Vicky's photos of her autopsy and there's something slightly different about hers. She does have on the backside of her body protected areas as though she was laying on a hard floor, but it's not unburned. It's still burnt. It's just less burned. It's protected like it was protected for a while. And then it wasn't. And then eventually her clothes and stuff burned off. But the charring isn't as bad on the back as it is the front. So this just, it, it just, none of this was kind of adding up to me. That's, that's why I went back to go do the arson investigation. So then, when, as I mentioned earlier, when I see that you know, once they clean the floor off completely and they hose the floor down until so we have a clean look at the burn patterns, again, the floor on the first floor now. On the west side of the house is completely gone. In front of the stairs is charred really badly with a hole. Stairs are gone. Around to the dining room is all gone. But the kitchen linoleum is intact. So again, I'm trying to figure out how did they possibly get that charred to where there's barely anything left of their bodies when they're on a floor where the linoleum isn't even melted. And obviously that like that's impossible. That does that that does not compute. It does not add up. So then when I go through the investigative reports, unfortunately I can't show you guys this. I just as as a as a policy and for privacy, I just don't put up photos of victims' bodies. But when they're excavating the bodies, now unfortunately, DeHart wasn't part of this process. I want to point that out. He didn't do a bad job of taking these photos. Whoever, the coroner and the fire department, when they were taking the bodies out, that's when I wish they had taken more detailed photos. 
because I wanted to see the floor directly underneath the bodies. And we never get a good picture. We, we see that floor in other photos later, but you still have to kind of guess where the body was. And, and there's just that there's no there's no burn patterns there, which is what I was looking for. But what I did notice is when they're excavating, particularly John's body, you can see they're digging his body out almost like an archaeologist would. And they're digging debris out from underneath his body. Just just smashed up debris. At one point, you can see his his legs and and part of his torso is a good three, four inches off the floor. And they're like scooping underneath, carefully underneath and scooping the debris away, burned up wood and metal and everything that had collapsed in the fire underneath him. If he was on the kitchen floor when the fire started, there would be nothing underneath him. That is huge and clear evidence that's not where he was when the fire started. I, I had mentioned something like this earlier, and, and somebody responded to me and said, well, you can't really judge based on the debris, how much debris on top of him because of the fire, and you're exactly right. But you can judge based on the debris under him. So we have John in the kitchen with at least four inches, three, four inches of debris underneath his body, and his body is completely burned 360 degrees all the way around it. Those two things tell me his body was upstairs when it burned. It ended up in the kitchen after the collapse. Now we go to Vicky's, same thing. It's not quite as clear in the photos, but again, there's no burn pattern where her body was. And you can see as they're removing her body, there's debris underneath her. Again, meaning she came from above. The difference between the two is that Vicky does have parts of her lower back, the, the bottom side of her, the back side of her, that appears to have been protected for some period of time from the fire, but then took some burns, but not complete charring, but then took some burns later. Now, John, where his body was in the crime scene photos, you can see in the same frame, just right off to the side of him, a mattress. You can see the springs from a mattress. Right, I mean, literally, like his body right next to it is a mattress that had completely burned up. All is there is, is the springs. Where he was found was right underneath Becky's room. He's in the kitchen. Her room was was above there. So, based on all of that, this is the conclusion that I draw as far as where the bodies were, based on the way John's body was burned, where he ended up. How the the angle of the collapse and the mattress near him. I think that when the fire started, John was on Becky's bed. Now, now that could mean a lot of things. And of course, I could be wrong. But that could also mean a lot of things, even if I'm right. It could mean that the bodies were moved, that they were shot somewhere, and then they were put up there. If that was the case, it would indicate somebody who wasn't very familiar with the house. If they went upstairs and found a bed to put them in, not realizing it wasn't John and Vicky's bed, because it, it definitely wasn't John and Vicky's bed. That was on the other end of the house, the house that completely burned down to the ground. Then that collapse did not go that direction. But if that was the case, if the bodies were moved, that would indicate someone who didn't know the layout of the house, didn't know whose bedroom was whose. I don't know that they were moved. But I think John was on the bed because of the charring, because he's so charred on all sides. 
to, it's an indicator to me that he was on top of something that was had some air to it and was highly combustible. And that, and that, that describes a mattress, meaning if you're on top of a spring mattress and there's a fire, the mattress is burning, it will consume you on all sides. And there will just be, obviously, the wiring, you know, the, the springs would still hold you in place as the fire would be burning a body all the way around it. And that's consistent with what we see with John. I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm saying that's consistent with what we see with him. And then we have Vicky. With Vicky's burn patterns, I believe Vicky's body was on her back on the floor when the fire started. She shows indications that there was heat underneath her. Her body was protected. The back of her body was protected from the flames because it was against the floor. But there was massive amounts of heat underneath, and that's why the skin is burnt. It's like it's still third-degree burns on the back, but it's not charred away. And that's indicative, of, to me, of her being on the floor, on her back, on the second floor. As far as their locations, I don't know. I know that they had to be on somewhere on the east side of the house over by Becky's bedroom in order to end up where they ended up. Uh, or and it could even be the hallway at the top of the stairs for Vicky. John's a little easier to tell because he's so far over into that corner. But because of those two factors that John looks like he was on a bed, Vicky looks like she was on the floor, I doubt the bodies were moved because it would be weird to put one of them on the bed and leave one on the floor. So my guess is that's where they ended up. And then if we look at their injuries and how those would play into that, Look at Vicky's injury. Point blank gunshot wound to the head. She would have dropped right down exactly where she stood when she was shot. It, it, death would be instantaneous with her. John is shot in the chest with a shotgun with bird shot. It's not like on TV. You don't get shot, fly back 10 feet in the air, and you're dead. That injury would take, take a bit of time to kill him. Even if we're talking 10, 15, 20 seconds, you can move a lot in 10, 15, 20 seconds. If you're still alive and conscious, he's got shot in the chest, you're going to keep moving away from the person with the shotgun. And that's exactly what I think happened here is Vicky was shot, dropped to the ground, was laying flat on the ground. John shot in the chest. He's retreating. He ends up retreating back all the way into Becky's bedroom. Now, the fact that both of them appear to have been upstairs, and I, and, I, and I do want to give the caveat, I am certain John was upstairs. I am 98% certain Vicky was upstairs. And I only say that because all the indications indicate that, but we never get a clear picture of the ground where she was at, and we never get any clear pictures of her excavation to really show. I can tell there's debris under her, but I can't tell if there's a lot of debris. So it is possible that Vicky was downstairs. I want to make sure that's clear. I do not think in any way at all it's possible that John was downstairs when that fire started. John, I am almost positive, was on Becky's bed when the fire started. So we can work out several different scenarios there as to what that would look like. But it appears to be maybe a retreat. It could be if Becky was still 
in her room. If John is shot, if Vicky's shot and killed, and John is shot injured badly, if he was going to protect Becky, if there was some, you know, if he knew that she was home, but maybe the killers didn't. There's a lot of different scenarios there. I should, I don't even want to actually propose any of them. I just want to tell you the facts. I and it, it's still not a fact, but it's my strong belief. John's body was on Becky's bed when the fire started and that Vicky, her body was on the ground when the fire started, either upstairs on the ground and collapsed into the spot she was, which is what I lean towards, or was actually shot downstairs and was on the ground there in that laundry room. And that's where she ended up. And again, the only reason I can't tell you one way or the other is we don't have clear pictures of that area. But there was heavy damage into the laundry room, right by where she was found. It could be consistent with those burn patterns on the top of her body and the bottom getting very hot and burned, because remember there's fire from underneath, the floor burned through. So that's possible. But John was upstairs. So this is what I think happened. So that's where I think John and Vicky were when the fire started. But how was it started? Based on the burn patterns and the floor charring and the collapse, I think that there was quite a bit of accelerant used here. I think there was some accelerant used upstairs, probably, especially if John was in Becky's room on Becky's bed, there might have been some put onto him. There was definitely accelerant poured down the stairs and this is what I didn't understand the wall between the dining room and the kitchen having a door on it hadn't I didn't realize that before and it, and it explains this crime scene a little bit better to me so if the person throws some gas around upstairs and by the way I don't know for sure if they did that I know it was used downstairs it's too, there's no way to tell upstairs because it burned through I, I'm I'm making an assumption there but I don't know but so let's forget that for a minute and go with down the stairs. So there's gas poured down the stairs at the base of the stairs. And then the offender, I think, then turns to the right or the southeast, splashes some gas around there in the dining room. And then there's a door, a wall with a door that's kind of cracked open into the kitchen. He doesn't go through or they don't go through that door. They go around to the left. There's the den right there. They splash gasoline around in the den. And then they go up to the northwest corner in the living room and they pour a bunch of gas into the living room there. And my guess is they probably that was they were out of gas at that point or they were just trying to protect their exit. But but, but my guess is that's a lot of gasoline to cover the floor, to splash all over the floor in the dining room and then the den and then the living room. And so then they come around to the laundry room then. And that's where the floor charring stops is there in the laundry room. It's potentially where Vicky's body was. We don't know for sure. She could have been upstairs. But from that point forward, the last quadrant of the house, the northeast corner, the kitchen, there's no burn patterns, no pour patterns, no burn patterns, no charring to the linoleum, not significant charring from there. So I think they come down the stairs, hit the dining room, the den, the living room. They're out of gas or for whatever reason, they stop splashing gas then. They open the back door, toss a match from the back door into the living room where the gasoline's already at, and that ignites all the way around those three quadrants of the house, up the stairs, and the fire is rocking and rolling. They leave out the back door. 
based on that scenario, I think they made their entry through the garage door. Remember, the garage door is wide open. They couldn't have started the fire from that door, the door out to the garage. Because when they lit up with that much gasoline, when they lit it up, there would have been flames that would shoot through the whole house because of the fumes. So in the initial burst of explosion. So they would want to be, I'm assuming they were, kind of outside that back door. And you can just throw a match in from there or make a little trailer of gasoline right to the door, light it, close the door and get out. But they couldn't light it from the door into the garage because there's that wall there and the door into the dining room. And there's they don't have the big burn patterns right there. So I think that the offenders came in through the garage, through that door, left the door open. The attacks happen. Somehow they end up upstairs. They get the gas or, you know, or they could have went back out to the garage to get the gas, poured it upstairs and left. But I, my guess is they left out the back door because that would be the easiest place to ignite the fire based on those burn patterns. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. All right, to wrap things up today, I've got a couple things in this last segment. One, as I mentioned, the reason that go through this arson report, even if you went through the other one, just so you can see the photos around the wheelbarrow, those photos taken by DeHart were taken while the fire was still burning. And the only reason I want you to look at them, because of course her body's redacted out of it, is I want you to look at the ground around there. I just want you to see it. You can determine whether you think the ground looks completely soaking wet and washed out. Uh, like Osterlo said it was uh, from the firefighters. When I look at it, it clearly was not. Uh, and then lastly, I also put up on the website, apologize in advance, I'm not a great artist, uh, but the whole Becky jumping out the window thing, I always wondered about that. Like, like shouldn't she have shown signs of like a broken ankle or something? A couple things occurred to me. Over these past few weeks, one, in re-listening to one of Bo Nash's interviews, he mentioned that Becky's bedroom was like an attic, like the type of room that has the short, maybe three, four foot walls on the ends, and then an angled ceiling, like a pitched ceiling. And I happen to think, well, in order to have side windows on those, you have to have dormers. And so then I looked at the crime scene drawing that Tiffany had drawn, the diagram. I think it was Tiffany that drew it, because that's what's mentioned in her interview, that she's drawing this thing out. But she shows the first floor layout and the second floor layout. And then above it, what I had never noticed before is she shows the roof with three dormers across it. 
that all of a sudden now it makes perfect sense why Tiffany and I think Drew had said how they would they could escape out their windows out the back and they, she said that we go out under the under the roof down onto the porch and get out. Well, if you look at so what I did is I made a 3D drawing as best I could based on what we heard in those interviews, what I see in the diagrams and and just how the general construction would work of the back of the house. And I think it'll just give you a little clearer perspective on how easy it would be to escape out of one of those windows on the second floor. And the reason is because the way those dormers punch out for windows in rooms like that, that are, that are kind of attic type rooms and the way Tiffany drew it, there would be a dormer in Becky's room, a dormer in the bathroom and a dormer in John and Vicky's room all out to the back of the house. But if you go out those windows, there's still roof under you. So your window doesn't drop straight down. You'd, open the window and step out onto three, four feet of roof before you get to the edge. So you don't have to jump out. You can, you can, you can get out and easily walk all over the roof at that point, right underneath Becky's window. So she went out the window onto the roof, whether it was from the bathroom or from her bedroom or from John and Vicky's room, wherever it was, she gets out onto the roof. Then there's a bay window directly underneath her room that has its own roof about three foot down below the main roof line. That's why now it makes sense to me when I heard her sisters explaining them coming down. It's not a it's not a far drop at all because you step out onto the roof and then you can literally just kind of climb down onto the bay window roof. And then you've got like a five foot, six foot jump down onto the patio. Pretty easy to, to get down there. I mean, it's still a six-foot jump. You wouldn't want to do it just for fun, but it's easily doable. So that picture is up on the website. It's literally just a photo of my dry erase board. If I have time between now and when the episode drops, I'll try to get on the computer and make a better 3D model. But I think this one at least shows you, demonstrates pretty well the layout of the house. So if we put all of that together... There's, I'm sure all of you now have a lot of theories running through your mind, what you think happened. Some of you just think everything I just said was bullshit, and that's fine. I'm very confident about the actual evidence, meaning I'm very confident John's body was upstairs, very likely in Becky's bed when the fire started. I'm very confident Vicky's body was on a floor when the fire started. I can't say with lots of confidence whether she was upstairs or downstairs, but I know John wasn't downstairs for sure. The burn patterns on the floor show that there was quite a bit of accelerant used. It wasn't just a couple little spots. Those just happened to be the spots where maybe there was more. Maybe there was already damage to the floor there, and they burned through those holes. But I'm very confident there was accelerants used in the dining room, the main entryway, the den, and the living room, and then not quite into the laundry room that's where the floor charring stops so if we go back to the hypothesis that i presented a few weeks ago how could all of this play out and again i want to stress i'm saying how could all of this had played out if becky was upstairs she gets off the phone could even be she goes to use the bathroom and someone comes into the house and there's chaos somebody maybe runs upstairs for whatever reason, Becky is hiding upstairs. She knows something's happening downstairs. She's hiding upstairs. Could be in a bathroom. Could be in a closet. It's hard to say. But she's somewhere upstairs. 
And she's somewhere she would for this scenario to be accurate, she had to be somewhere where she couldn't get to the phone or the phone cord was cut or the phone cord was taken off the hook, uh, which was why we had the busy signal later. For some reason, she's not able to call 911. At some point, shots are fired. Vicky's killed. John's shot. I don't, again, I don't think the bodies were moved. I think John retreats at some point and he ends up in Becky's bed. The offenders are up there and so is Becky, but they don't know she's there. Then they start pouring gasoline and they light the house on fire. I think probably unlikely they used much accelerant upstairs, but I don't know that because we just don't have any evidence of the burn patterns from up there. All we know from Tim Summerlee was that he could see flames coming out of the window on the east side of the house from Becky's bedroom, that he saw the flames coming out of that window when he saw the fire. And at that point, in this scenario, and again, it's just hypothetical, and I should have mentioned this at the beginning, there's no script for this episode. I'm just talking to you guys. And so a lot of this is me just thinking out loud. But if you imagine a scenario where... Becky climbs out of the of the window out onto the roof before they light the house on fire. And then she's getting ready to jump down and then sees them come out the back door right underneath her. Obviously, she wouldn't jump down. She would probably try and hide, right? But then they toss the match and fire. First of all, again, with gasoline, that's an explosive situation. There is a big boom there's flames would be shooting out of every open door and window, including the one probably that she just opened, if the door into whatever that room was still open. But there would be a lot of fire really fast, probably enough to scare her into either she fell off the roof or just go ahead and jump off the roof, or the offenders start to move their way away. She thinks they're gone. She makes too much noise getting down. They catch her. Now again, lights are coming on. They quickly kill her, put her in the wheelbarrow lighter, and the offenders escape. Just some possible scenarios. I want you guys to think about all this. I want you to look through the uh, the arson report and the photos that I have on the website. Let me know what you think, and we will talk about this further with Janet. Zach won't be here this week. He's going to be out of town, out on assignment. But myself and Janet, with anybody who wants to join us on YouTube, we'll be talking about it this week on The Follow-Up. NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnick, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. 
For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at BobRuffTruth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.